Let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 9. Sunday mornings, we're studying the book of Revelation together. We come to chapter 9, and so we're finding our way there. Just a reminder that on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, currently studying the book of Zechariah. If you want to read ahead of time for tonight, we'll study chapters 6 and uh, uh, 7 and 8. Some very valuable lessons that are found in that chapter, those two chapters, and that'll be 6 o'clock tonight, each of you invited. Chapter 9 of the Revelation. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose, arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They'll desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts is like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is his name, he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past, behold, still two more woes are coming after these. And then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God in heaven saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, Uh, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lion, and out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm." But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this chapter in your word. 
We thank you that it is intended to accomplish something within each one of our lives, those that know you, those that don't yet know you. And we pray that you would take now your word as I endeavor to teach it, and that it would come forth not in word only, not as merely a sermon, but as your word and in demonstration of your spirit and in your power. And we ask for this work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Chapter 9 is a continuation of the trumpet judgments that uh, were begun in chapter 8 of the Revelation. In chapter 8, there's a record of the first four of the trumpet judgments, and they constituted a judgment upon the physical uh, aspects of the world itself. These final two judgments are kind of a shift in gears in that the physical earth is not the focus of, uh, of these judgments, but uh, the men and women upon the earth become the focus of these final uh, two judgments. Perhaps in the course of growing up, wherever you grew up, you've heard the uh, uh, saying where somebody is describing some situation and then they say, and then all hell broke loose. And, And it communicates a situation in which it immediately and very, very quickly goes from bad to much, much uh, worse. And uh, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, listen, I I saw this, and uh, the two of them were arguing, and, and then suddenly someone pulled out a gun, and then all hell broke loose. And it describes a situation that instantly becomes violent, it becomes chaotic, it becomes uh, destructive. And what we have here in chapter 9 with the sounding of the fifth and sixth trumpets is exactly uh, what happens in the world. Uh, All hell breaks loose at this particular uh, point in time and all of its ugliness, all of its fury, and uh, all of its wickedness. And uh, here chapter 9 reveals to us what the world will become under uh, the strong, strong influence of the devil and of his uh, demonic uh, uh, realm. It's as if, I think, at this point in the tribulation, God speaks to a world that continues to live in rebellion to Him in the face of the seal judgments, in the face of the trumpet judgments. They will continue to do so uh, through the bold judgments. And God declares uh, to, to the world that's living in rebellion against Him. Remember, the church has been removed by this point. It's as if He says, you want Satan instead of me? Great. I will give him to you but it will not be the great thing that you think it's going to be. And no longer are you going to know or experience or dabble in the, de- in the devil by degrees. Now you will have him in all of his wickedness, in all of his violence, in all of his uh, ugliness. And in chapter 9, you have one of the great exposés of what the devil would do to the world and what the devil would do to every single human being in the world without the restraints that are currently placed upon him uh, by God in, in his grace and his, his wisdom. And 
uh, here we see Satan for who he is and what he really is. Someone might wonder in looking at this point in the, the tribulation in which um, the people that are uh, Christians, people that are becoming Christians are almost immediately being martyred. The population is made up of people who are, again, in open rebellion against God. They're worshiping the Antichrist. They're worshiping the devil that is behind the Antichrist. And here, Satan is let loose into this, uh, this situation in, in the form of this uh, trumpet. And, and you might wonder, why, why does Satan meet out uh, such savage violence against the world during the tribulation period when they're already worshiping him. They are already his followers. And they, it is because that is who he is. Sometimes people think that if I'm going to follow the devil, that somehow if I commit myself to him or his ways or whatever, somehow I'll tame him. Somehow I will make a friend of him and, uh, and we'll become an ally in something and he'll have some level of regard for me by virtue of the fact that I've committed my life to his path. And then a chapter like this comes as a surprise because if anyone, even if they destroy their life for the devil, thinks they're going to make a friend of the devil in doing so, knows nothing about the devil knows nothing about his hatred of mankind collectively, his hatred of every single individual uh, human being, and his desire to destroy God's plan in his purposes in every one of our lives. You can never make a friend of the devil. He's incapable of it. If he could not be a friend, if he could not be faithful and loyal to God Almighty in the position that he was created for, he is certainly not going to esteem us on, on any kind of uh, level as well. And so at this point in time uh, today, uh, people dabble with the devil. Uh, there's a sense in which people that play around with the demonic, they play around with the, uh, the devil's kingdom and, and, and the realm. They're playing around with the devil with two hands tied behind his back. The world today doesn't even, can't even barely get a glimpse of the, at the horror that he is capable of and desires to bring uh, upon uh, mankind, what he is really like and what he would do to the world and what he would do to every single one of us without the restraints that God place, has placed upon him in, in our, our lives. And so this is this, one of the great exposés of the devil, one of the great exposés of the devil in all of the Bible found here in, in chapter 9. There's a great demonic horde that is released as a part of this uh, uh, fifth trumpet that is blown there in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, John saw a star fallen from heaven. You notice that he doesn't see the star fall. The star is already uh, fallen. We know that what he's referring to here is not a literal star, but it refers to a person because we're further told concerning this star, to him, that's a personal pronoun, 
Uh, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. You notice as well in verse 11 that this same personage uh, is referred to uh, as a king. And so all of this as we allow the Old Testament to interpret the book of Revelation for us, all of this uh, uh, appears to point unmistakably uh, to Satan himself. In Ezekiel chapter 28, one of the uh, two great passages in the Old Testament that speaks of Satan's fall, of Satan's origin, of the intent of Satan's heart. Uh, Ezekiel uh, wrote by the Spirit of God, speaking of the devil, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you, God said. You were the, on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones as access to heaven, as prominence in heaven. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. And by the abundance of your trading, you have become filled with violence within and you sin. And therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. The other passage that speaks uh, in a kind of a, a revelatory way related to the devil is in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 14, and God declares uh, to Lucifer how you are fallen. Uh, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who have weakened the nations. Jesus spoke when the 70 were sent out of his disciples to go out and to preach the gospel and to perform miracles as a witness and a testimony to the power of the gospel. They came back and they said to Jesus, wow, people got healed. We were even able to cast demons out of people. And Jesus spoke to them in Luke chapter 10, and uh, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw him fall. I uh, watched that great rebellion and him fall from his original uh, position. And so here we have a star fallen from heaven referring to the devil. The fallen is, is in the perfect tense. It describes something that has happened to the devil in the past, uh, but producing a condition uh, that continues to the present. So the devil fell, and, uh, and he is fallen, and he continues to be fallen uh, to this day. You notice also in verse 1, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And the bottomless pit is a reference to uh, the abode of, of demons. Uh, again, Jesus, when he cast out the 6,000 or however many demons from the man that was a demon possessed by a legion of, uh, of demons, and, uh, and as he's uh, getting ready to cast the demons out of of the man, uh, the demons then begged Jesus that he would not command them to come out of the man and into the abyss. Uh, this this uh, uh, chamber uh, that they would not be uh, cast in there. Even uh, the demons don't want to be in this chamber, in this abyss. And they begged to be able to uh, then 
take and possess the herd of pigs. And when they did, the pigs uh, drove themselves into the Sea of, uh, of Galilee. It is a place where Satan is going to be confined during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And uh, we're told in Revelation chapter 20, And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and put a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the... uh, a thousand years were finished, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. It is interesting in the light of this chapter to realize that somewhere on the face of this planet, that there is a locked shaft, and the lock indicates that it's controlled. This is not a passage where demons move in and out of uh, willy-nilly or uh, at will. There is a there is a shaft, there is a locked shaft that leads down into this massive underground uh, cavern of some kind that is the abyss or the abode of demons. There are other verses that speak to this in the New Testament. In Jude verse 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, speaking of demons, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, demons, but cast them down to hell and delivered uh, them into chains of darkness to be uh, reserved for judgment. And so this bottomless pit that has inhabited a, a kind of a jail, so to speak, a, uh, a cavern there that, that, that keeps them uh, locked up. Uh, this is not referring to Hades. It's not referring to hell. It's a prison. It's a detention center of some kind in the underworld where the demons are, are confined uh, by God. But as we're going to continue through the chapter, um, as we see here, there are entire realms uh, of, uh, of the demonic realm that we know nothing about, uh, the, that mankind hasn't even remotely been exposed to because God has protected us uh, from that thus far. But at a point in the great tribulation period, that protection will, uh, will uh, lift. The fact that the devil can only open this pit when he's allowed to open this pit uh, is an indication that he's not in charge. He's not in charge of anything. He will never be in charge of hell. He is not in charge of the earth. He is not in charge of this shaft. He is not in charge of the door that opens it. God is in charge of everything in this situation. And, and he, uh, he uh, can only do what God allows him to do. You notice in verse 2, the opening of the bottomless pit. When Satan opens the pit, smoke begins to arise up out of the pit, and it's described as smoke like out of a great furnace. Now, we don't have that many factories like there were around when I was a kid, and you had them just belching smoke into the air, and, and uh, so you have that picture within 
within your mind, but that's, that's the idea of it. Now, we have a saying and, uh, that we're all familiar with, and that is, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? So when you have smoke that comes billowing out of this shaft, as, as the door of it is opened up, it's an indication that there's a fire associated with it that is producing the smoke. The smoke is so great that comes out of this chamber that it affects the brightness of the sun and the moon and the stars. So we're talking about a lot of smoke impacting uh, the, the uh, world here uh, coming forth from the pit. And then if you're reading this and you think, oh, I just can't get any worse than that, uh, it, it, uh, things do get a lot worse. And the Apostle John then in verses 3 and 11 begins to describe uh, demons uh, resembling locusts now to begin to emerge from the pit and onto the earth. So you imagine this opening, however uh, big it might be, and then if you've ever seen insects or any kind of what in a science fiction movie or something come pouring out of this opening, an army, uh, a, a demonic army, they just begin to pour forth uh, from this. Something Tolkien can't even imagine what uh, this is like, or, uh, or anyone that's making movies uh, uh, even, uh, even today. Now, we know that they're demons because they're eagerly released by Satan in verses 1 and 2. They're under his authority. Uh, in verse 11, they're described as having Satan as their king. You notice, and they had his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Both Abaddon and Apollyon mean the same thing. They mean destruction and they mean destroyer. Satan's name is given to us in the Hebrew and also given to us in the Greek. Why? To communicate that he is the enemy of all mankind. He doesn't care whether you're a Jew. He doesn't care whether you're a Gentile. Uh, he wants to destroy everyone uh, alike and everyone uh, equally. Jesus taught uh, famously related to the devil in John chapter 8, verse 44, speaking to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, uh, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He doesn't have to hear a lie and pass it on. He's the father of it. And he is a liar and the father uh, of it. And so here in Revelation, Satan is fully exposed for who and what he is at his core. And so this terrible satanic army uh, of demons pouring forth from the pit and uh, in the form of uh, what uh, John looked at and said the, the closest thing that he could describe them with is as uh, locusts. Of course, in the ancient world, one of the most feared things that could ever happen would be a plague of locusts or a, a, a great a horde of locusts coming. They, cut, they would sometimes come and they would be uh, miles in depth, miles in width, and their uh, uh, appetite is voracious. They simply eat anything that lives that is in their path. They destroy every living thing that is in their path in terms of, of vegetation. And the point being here, 
that what a physical swarm or plague of locusts does to the vegetation of the earth, these locusts are going to do, so to speak, to the field of humanity at, at this time. And the destruction that they're going to meet out is, is going to be fearsome and going to be devastating. And so if a plague of locusts, literal locusts, could strike tear into the hearts of every person that would watch it approaching. We're going to lose everything. And it did produ- they did produce that kind of tear. Imagine what tear the approach of this satanic army will produce at that time. You notice how perfectly these demons uh, are equipped and how uniquely they are equipped for uh, their mission here. Uh, you notice in verse 7 that their shape was like horses prepared for battle. And, you, and all the way through here, John is going to say, and it's like and like and like and like. There's nothing in the existence in the human condition that he can say, this is exactly what it was. But he's saying, the closest thing that I can get from what is our everyday in life to describe them is this. But there's no uh, parallel uh, in existence today. And so uh, John said that they are like horses prepared for battle. John had seen plenty of horses and, and, uh, before. If these were horses, he would have said so. They're not uh, horses, but horses are the closest thing to them that he has seen. So probably speaking of the size of, of these beings, they're not like one of those little gnome statues that you may have in your yard or, or, or something like that. These demons are very considerable uh, in size. He declares them to be horses prepared for battle. Horses that were prepared for battle were always trained for it. They were prepared for it. They would always be well uh, uh, equipped for the battle. And in the same way, this demonic army is going to be very, very well prepared and trained and equipped for their task of horror in, in, uh, among mankind. In verse 7, on their heads were crowns of something like gold. Crowns represent power. They represent authority. And so they're going to rule the world, so to speak, for five uh, months. A crown also speaks of ultimate victory. It speaks of being victorious. For that five months, they're going to be unstoppable, completely victorious in their, uh, in their wicked work in, in the world. Their faces, we're told in verse 7, were like the faces of men. So they will carry some kind of human-like uh, characteristics and uh, probably uh, share in man's cunning, share in man's uh, uh, intelligence. Uh, in verse 8, they had hair like uh, women's hair, so they'll have the characteristics of both men and women. Uh, and maybe what's being communicated here in this is how evil so often presents itself as something that is beautiful to begin with, and then you see the wickedness under, underneath. And so the beauty of this hair, uh, but uh, they are um, unworthy of any kind of beautiful characteristic that they might bear. Their teeth, were told in verse 8, were like lion's teeth, so terrifying, very strong, and, and, uh, and frightening to any prey. In verse 9, they had breastplates of iron, and so they're going to have scales covering their bodies that are impenetrable. 
Uh, there will be no, nothing that man can come up with or uh, devise in order to uh, destroy them or to, uh, uh, to protect it related to this attack. They'll be completely impervious to uh, any attack. They're going to prevail, and they're going to prevail against anyone that attempts to uh, resist or destroy them as well. The sound of their wings, verse 9, was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. So they possess wings. Uh, they attack, will attack in large numbers. Uh, the very sound of their approach will uh, terrify people as they hear them uh, approach. And verse 10, and they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. And so they're going to have the general appearance of a locust, uh, and then they're going to possess uh, the sting, the stinger, and the sting uh, of a uh, scorpion. And, and the power that's given to them is uh, told us here, also in verse 3 through 5, we're told that they're given the power and the authority to torment or to torture, uh, to inflict pain upon people uh, for a period of five months, and it will be like the pain of being stung by a scorpion. Now, I've never been stung by a scorpion, and uh, uh, the, I don't know that scorpions are in this part of, uh, of California or any, anything like that. I have no intention of being uh, uh, stung by a scorpion. If you Google it, you can get all kinds of information about how incapacitating and how painful this, uh, this kind of thing is. Uh, sometimes my wife will call me from another room and I know just the sound of her voice that some major insect is on a wall somewhere in the house, usually a big ugly spider, and I'm supposed to go in there and squish it. And, um, but she's never called me to come in and get a, a scorpion because she'd be on her own at that point. I'd, I'd have to go get the raid or whatever can knock them out and then just go deal with their dead body. I'm not squishing those things uh, at, at all. I know I have dominion as a man, um, but I, I'm not interested in exercising that, that dominion. You notice that these, these demons are commanded not to harm the vegetation of the earth, verse 4. And they, they cannot uh, touch uh, uh, the, uh, those that have the seal of God on their uh, forehead, uh, the 144,000 that we talked about in, in chapter uh, 7. So those people are off limits from uh, this, uh, uh, what, what these demons are going to meet out. So no one is protected from them except the 144,000. Notice, too, that there are boundaries placed upon these demons, and those boundaries are set by God, and much the way that God set the boundaries of the devil's attack against uh, Job in the Old Testament. So we see that they're not allowed to kill any human beings, and then they're not even uh, allowed to sting the 144,000. And the span of, uh, of this nightmare, we're told, the span of their uh, mission, so to speak, is for five months. That's an interesting period of time, isn't it? To me, I just, uh, just round it up to six. I round it down to four. I like, but why five months? One of the fascinating things about a locust is their lifespan is five months. Uh, it is from May through September. 
And then at the end of the five months, the locusts die. And at the end of the five months, these demons clearly don't die, but they do disappear. There's no revelation in terms of what happens uh, to them, but because they are angelic beings, they're eternal, so they can't die. My, my opinion is, is that they're forced to go back down into uh, that channel and down into that chamber uh, to await their judgment with uh, the one that they've made the king uh, of their life. And so uh, this is a period of five months in which uh, all of this is meted out upon the world in terms of this, this um, uh, fifth uh, trumpet. The effect of all of this upon mankind is given to us in verse 6. And uh, again, one of those things that just is like uh, blows your mind when you, when you uh, read it for the first time and, and, and give it some consideration. In those days, men will seek death and not be able to find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. I mean, that's really, really amazing. So for five months in the history of the world on planet Earth, Death is going to take a holiday. Under normal circumstances, if the world did not experience a single death for any cause for five months, it would be a cause for celebration. But this is not normal circumstances in the great uh, tribulation uh, period. The tormenting stings of these demons are going to be so great that people are going to seek death, they're going to desire death, but find it is impossible to die. No matter what they do to themselves even to die, death will not cooperate. Death will not unite with what it is that, that they are doing. It will flee from them. And every attempt to escape the torment of these demonic beings and to actively seek death as a means of escape is going to be completely fruitless. Every suicide attempt will be fruitless. The attempt can be made, but the death will not take place. You say, how else would people know? that they will want to die, desire to die, try to die, and not experience death, except they try to take their lives. And and here, uh, how would they know that, that death will not cooperate, will not deliver them from what they're in the middle of, except that they attempt suicide as a means of escape, and no matter what means they attempt, the soul will not leave the body. Whether the attempt, not even talking about uh, war, not even talking about uh, the wounds of crime and these kind of things, but thinking about a person trying to take their life by drug overdoses or by putting a gun to their head and, and shooting the gun or by slitting their wrists or by hanging themselves or jumping from a bridge or jumping from a building. There will be all of the physical consequences of the attempt to find deliverance by means of death, and, but there will be no death for the entirety of, of the five months. They will continue to live. Now, when you look at this, it's important if you're tempted to think that all of this represents kind of a cruel and unusual punishment on the part of God. In reality, He's showing grace. It's medicine, hard medicine, 
but it is medicine uh, nonetheless. What God is doing here is He is giving the entire world that is given at this point to the worship of the devil, to the worship of their sin. What He gives them is a five-month taste of what hell will be like, of the unspeakable uh, torment of, of hell. And the fact that in the midst of that torment, there will be no means of escaping it by way of death, living without any hope that it will ever end, because there is no death in eternity. And he does all of this in an effort to get them to repent of their rebellion against him, and in order to avoid the eternal judgment that is far Uh, worse than this appetizer that is coming their way in their current condition. Now, if you think to yourself, listen, nothing could be uh, worse than, uh, than this, and this has to be as bad as it gets, but it, it gets worse. And the worst is introduced with the words in verse 12, uh, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. And then the sixth trumpet is sounded, and after a five-month absence of death from the human condition, death returns to the world uh, with a vengeance. And John hears, the Apostle John hears a voice from the four horns uh, of the golden altar which is before God which as we've covered in the past, reminds us that all that is happening here is in response to prayers to God by His people through the ages. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And God knows this is the only means by which it can take place. The sixth angel in verse 14 is instructed to release the four angels who are bound uh, at the great river Euphrates. So clearly, these are fallen angels, these are demons. Never do you find in the Scriptures, never do you find a, a, an angel that has been faithful to his first estate, unfallen, never do you find them bound. Because no angel is a threat to any human being. No angel is a threat to the plan of God. So there's no need to bind them. By virtue of the fact that they're bound, we're talking about uh, demonic beings, fallen uh, angels. And these four demons are so powerful and so destructive that they have to be bound. Or if they weren't bound by God, they would immediately release, be released in, into mankind and uh, endeavor to destroy every human being that they can. They're bound currently in the vicinity of the Euphrates uh, River. And so, uh, perhaps in some chamber there, whatever the means might, might be in, in modern-day Iraq. You notice in verse 15 that the result that occurs here, these four angels who've been prepared for this exact time uh, were released to kill, not merely to torment like the previous uh, trumpet, now released to kill a third of mankind. And notice that they are released to kill. They are not instructed to kill. Because demons don't need to be instructed to kill, it is what they will do. 
Uh, their master is a murderer. Uh, is, is Jesus described the devil. They need no instruction. All they need is release. And here God releases them to uh, then do what uh, they would desire to do and to bring the destruction that they would, they would bring uh, if they weren't bound. The world that we live in today, again, people play around with the devil and then they've got rock and roll and all and the, and the romanticizing of the whole thing in the demonic realm. Uh, it is to dabble in something that we have no idea what we're dabbling in. We're dabbling in a realm in which that realm, again, has both hands tied behind its back presently, as awful as, as spiritual warfare uh, uh, can be. And, and here is this, what we owe to God, uh, if He did not keep these, these beings uh, restrained uh, and held back all of these thousands uh, of years, the destruction that uh, they would have already brought into human history. And then you take and add this one-third of mankind being killed with this trumpet to the one-quarter of mankind being killed uh, as we saw in, in chapter 6, verse 8. And at this point, you have uh, over half of the population of the world uh, is, uh, dies up to this point in the tribulation. And, and it's a horror beyond what, what anybody can uh, uh, think of. Daniel the prophet, he was informed of the horror of all of this. And uh, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, he records, And at that time, Michael, the great archangel, uh, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Speaking of this great tribulation. Jesus spoke with great, even greater clarity and, and greater substance in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, in describing all of this. For there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no human being, no flesh at all would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. It will only be Jesus' second coming uh, that will prevent the complete annihilation of mankind on the earth. You notice too in verses 16 through 19 that John sees an army of horsemen here that number 200 uh, million. And uh, people are divided related to uh, good Bible scholars and commentators and uh, Bible students in terms of what makes up this army of 200 million. Uh, some people believe that it refers to uh, an entirely new demonic, uh, a, a demonic army that is uh, brought forth to bring this destruction upon, uh, upon the earth. Uh, the description that he gives uh, of them uh, there in, in verses uh, 17 through 19 certainly would seem to indicate that it is uh, demonic in, in its source. There are others who look and say, well, it is a human army numbering in 200 million that uh, the demonic realm has taken charge of uh, to then bring this kind of, of, uh, of uh, death uh, into the world at, at, at that 
uh, at that time. Again, during the tribulation period, mankind is going to desire Satan and the demonic realm over God, and so God gives them their wish, and now they are not going to face the devil by degrees and enjoy God's protection uh, while they... Uh, uh, jump into the middle of all of that, they're going to have the devil in all of his evil and in all of his blood uh, thirstiness. And uh, when you look at the description of their uh, lethal capacity as it's given there in verses 17 through 19, as, and as we read it, uh, all I can say is, um, I don't want to I don't want to meet any of these four or any of that army uh, 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 on a dark corner on any night uh, of, of the week. I'm not interested in it. Sometimes people, I'm a pre, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. We've talked about it earlier uh, in, in the series. Sometimes uh, uh, others that hold a different view, they'll look at someone like me and they'll say, well, you're such a wimp. You don't want to go through the great tribulation and, and the, the whole thing and, and uh, you're, you're such a sissy for, for not wanting to be in, in, the, in the middle of this and to enjoy God's power in the midst of it. And I'll usually say, well, what else have you noticed about me? We're, we're not talking about a fight on, on some corner. We're talking about an unleashing of the demonic realm in a way that we can't even imagine. And I don't care who are, I don't know who are the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of today, the big tough, the big whatever, they will all wet their pants on that day. And worse, there will be no tough guys in the face of what it is that is happening here in, in, in this scene. No resisting uh, 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 this, uh, this demonic realm that they've given themselves over to. But the most uh, uh, really astonishing thing about the entire chapter is not what we've uh, just looked at. It's actually recorded for us in the final two verses, verses 20 and 21 of the chapter. And that is the response of the survivors of all of this. They've just been through five months of torture wanting to die, and they can't die. Then another horde, whether demonic or demonically controlled, comes in, and one-third of mankind is destroyed in, uh, in, that, in that devastation. And you would think everybody in their right mind would be running to God, repenting of their sin and turning uh, to God, but we're told of them they did not repent. And it's repeated for us. It's found once in verse 20 and again in uh, verse 21 for the emphasis. They did not repent. And, and it tells us that these trumpet judgments uh, that were released by God here were all released with the intention of bringing even the hardest heart imaginable among human beings to repentance and to salvation to produce a humility and a fear uh, of God in the judgment of God and to turn to God, but they did not repent. Even all of this judgment couldn't bring them to repentance. And you think about how amazing it is and how hard-hearted a person has to be toward God and what lovers of sin a person must be 
that even when they get to see their God, the devil for the destroyer that he is, in five months of, of torture and in, in, in the destruction of a third of mankind, they still will not repent and turn to God. And the sins that they love are listed for us here. The sins that they love so much that they would rather die than give them up. Think about that. They would rather die than to give up these sins because they'd have to give them up to turn to God. The work of their hands, verse 20, materialism. The worship of demons, verse 20. Murders, verse 21. Sorceries, verse 21, the occult. And the word sorceries there, the Greek word is pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy uh, from it or pharmaceutical uh, uh, from the Greek word. It's not referring to the, the partaking of legitimate drugs like insulin or partaking of an antibiotic for a need within, uh, w- within our lives. This is referring to the uh, partaking of mind-altering drugs, drugs to get high, what people call uh, recreational drugs, in order that their minds might be opened up to a realm that they can't experience without getting high on, on these drugs and entering into a realm that God never intended a single human being to explore or to make themselves vulnerable uh, to. And so the partaking of drugs and the seeking of enlightenment and the seeking of a knowledge that uh, they think will only come that way to alter their state uh, of consciousness. And demons involve themselves, always involve themselves in, in that kind of, uh, of drug use. They won't give up their sexual immorality, verse 21. The includes fornication, it includes adultery, it includes prostitution, it includes uh, pornography, zero interest in marriage, zero interest in the institution of marriage, zero interest in being faithful to one person. All of this is going to be gone at this point in in the tribulation uh, period. No sexual restraint at all. And then uh, they were even unwilling to give up their thefts. Not even willing to give up one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and here you have a, not only a lack of concern at all for God, but here is a lack of concern for their fellow man. Anything that isn't bolted down and guarded during this time of the tribulation period is, is going to be uh, subject to, uh, to theft. I think it's somewhere right in here, if we were this kind of church, and we're not this kind of church, that I would have the sound man cue, uh, Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. I thought about that when I was reading that this week. I happened to see a clip where Axl Rose was playing with the country western lady. Uh, recently, and so maybe it was just on my mind. But you, if you and I'm not advocating, but you you read you you read the anarchy and the wickedness and the darkness of what's being expressed in that song, saying "Welcome to the jungle." The whole world is going to become a jungle. It's going to become a jungle. It's going to. It's one thing for it to be lyrics in a song, with some really good music attached to it. In my opinion, catchy music. We'll put it that way. But it's another thing for it to become a reality upon the earth. And not in pockets of the earth, but upon the entire world uh, uh, itself. 
The entire world is going to be deliberately and incurably at war with God and every command of God. And at this point, God is either going to win and have the world He desires, or they're going to win and have the demonic world they desire. And God steps in and He says, no, we're going to have the world that I desire. And the new heavens and the new earth. And so in chapter 9, we see a love for the practice of sin that is greater than even a love for life. Where a person says, I would rather die than give up my sin and turn to God and repent. And this speaks to us of the incredible danger of sin in a person's life. And the power of the hook of sin. All sin. And the, and the, the power of the grip of which it can take upon, uh, upon us in, in, a, in a human life. I will not uh, turn uh, from my mind-altering drugs. I will not turn from my drug use, from my sexual immorality, my right to abortion, murder, even if it means my own destruction, even if it means the destruction of all of civilization around me, even if it brings the end of decency in the world, I will not turn from these sins. No matter what the price I will pay or the world will pay for people like me. And they won't do it. They won't turn from it. And the spirit of Antichrist is already very well present uh, by degree in the world that we live in today. Naturally speaking, there is no more powerful instinct in the human life than the instinct of self-preservation, the survival instinct. When your life gets put in jeopardy and something is going to potentially bring an end to your life, you don't have to even think about what to do. Your heart, your mind, your emotions kick into gear instantly and begin to work because it's something deeper than what we think about. It's an instinct within us. And imagine a love for sin that is so great that it comes to dwarf that instinct, to dominate that instinct in a human life. And the power and the hook of, of sin and the control that sin can come to exert in a human life. And these final two verses really shine a light on the frightening reality concerning sin. Where the addiction uh, uh, to sin, the love for sin becomes so great, a person would rather die than give up their sin. And I think we probably, most of us have some, at least one or two people that we've known, maybe one or two people in our family or extended family that we, we see them in this very place. Their sin is killing them and they won't give it up. And the tragedy of that, the tragedy of carrying that is we do for people that we love. But we have a, a, a different kind of world. The world that we live in is one where these don't, this doesn't mark all of the relationships in my life. Just one, two, or three. The rest of the world and my friends and my peers and influencers are all safe and sane and they're healthy. But what happens when the whole world becomes like this? And one day the whole world will become like this. 
Jesus taught, he said, Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever, and therefore if the son makes you free, speaking of himself, you shall be free indeed. He said further in the Sermon on the Mount, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And since we as human beings have been created to worship, to have a master passion in our lives, if I reject God and His commandments, then sin will become every bit the master in my life that God is intended to be. And nothing short of that in, in my life. And this silly, juvenile attitude within our culture and the way that we view freedom where we look and say true freedom is found in me being free to choose the sin that I am going to put myself into bondage to, the sin that I am going to allow to destroy my life. What kind of freedom is that? What kind of, a, what kind of thinking looks and says, yes, that is, that is freedom in life, to choose the sin that will destroy me? is the one that I participate in. It's not freedom, it's slavery. And it's the most unnecessary slavery of all. Every one of us is going to sell ourselves into slavery in this life. And so it requires, it will be either to a slavery to God or a slavery to sin. And what it requires is, and I know I'm going a little bit late if that helps you, but what is required since we are going to be a slave to something and a servant to something or someone, it requires examining the options that are on the table in, in this regard. How we would look then at all of the, the different masters in the world and, and then look at how they treat their servants in order that we might then choose the most loving, caring, other-centered, gracious master that I can have in my life. And you look at how the devil treats his servants, and you realize there's, it, that that is not the master that you want. You watch what pharmacia does to its servants, and you say, that is not the master that you want. How is it that there are, is even one heroin addict in the world today? We have known wide-scale in the United States of America since the 1950s that this will destroy any human life that even gets near this thing. And yet, the heroin addiction that is at epidemic levels today and never higher. And then you talk about fentanyl or you talk about LSD and the use of these things, never higher. We, the 60s has nothing on the level of drug use that is being done today. And when you look at what people are putting themselves into bondage to, it is a cry, it is a revelation of the fact that no one is examining their master. Nobody is assessing who and what I am giving my life to with any sobriety. And to realize there are consequences to that and to sin in our lives. And anyone who spends a moment doing that will run to Christ for salvation and run to Him to make Him uh, our Master. 
And when a person does that, Jesus declares, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's the only one that we can make our master and become free as a result of doing that. He's the only one that can do that in life. So if you sit here this morning and whatever, and you're not yet a Christian, and whatever sin, and not just sex, drugs, rock and roll, welcome to the jungle sins, but the sin of pride, the sin of self-righteousness, uh, the sin of arrogance, these kind of things. And, 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 and you sit here and you say, my life is a, a product of this sin. And it has torn me apart physically. It has torn me apart emotionally. It has torn me apart uh, mentally. And, and it is destroying my life in the same way that is described here in Revelation chapter 9. And for you, the answer is, is to turn your life to Christ. Turn your life over to Him. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And everything can turn on a dime. Everything can change. Because you're under new management. And you've come under a new master. And all of that, that can happen today. If you look at it, and you're not yet saved, and you say, no, I, I don't uh, want that. I want to continue to um, in, in my sin. That's one of the reasons I want, one of the reasons Revelation chapter 9 is in the Bible. So you know where it leads. And here's the problem. If you can say no to God presently uh, in order to continue to engage uh, in sin, if you can do that to Him, if sin has already got that kind of a lock upon your life, then it is a very small step to then being a participant in chapter 9 one day. You say, you're trying to scare me. No, I'm not trying to scare you. I am wanting to scare you more than try. Like to put you in a headlock. Frighten you to death. This chapter is a part of the future of human history. It is going to happen. And if you are halfway down the path to the seduction that leaves you in the world when this unfolds, then you're in greater danger than, than you realize. And the great word that needs to rise up out of chapter 9 to you this morning is escape. The very thing that God wanted to do with the people there, the whole means of which all of these things are released for them to come to their clear thinking and escape this judgment. And to escape not just the foretaste of hell, but to, for, but to escape the hell that this is a foretaste of. And it's all found in the same place. 
and turning and giving my life to Christ. He loves these people, still wants to save them. They are rock hard against Him. And He still tries to save them. And so He does with all of us. If you sit here this morning and you are a Christian, you say, what in the world is this supposed to, this chapter supposed to produce in me? Gratitude. Gratitude. Not just that we will not be present to experience this wrath of God, but to realize how far-reaching and wonderful and powerful this salvation is in our lives. We don't know the half of what we've been saved from because of this Savior and because of this salvation. And chapters like this cause us to be even more grateful for the salvation that's been given to us in the very Son of God in Christ, even when we think we couldn't be any more grateful than we already are. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would take what is uh, of you related to this passage in this sermon and that you would not allow it to return void. And I pray that that great word, escape, 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 the necessity of escape, the horrible danger that is coming, that anyone still able to think in their right mind would want to escape from. And I pray, Lord, that that word would pound in the heart and in the minds of anyone that doesn't know You yet and is still unwilling to forfeit their sin and turn from it and to repent and to turn to You until all of that happens. And then, Lord, I pray that this great word, gratitude, will resound in every one of our hearts as we just see going through Your Word layer after layer after layer of You showing us the wonder of what You have provided us with, what You have delivered us out of and delivered us into in our Savior and in the salvation that is found in Him. This morning, Lord, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for a deliverance from all of this. And we thank You for the freedom of the life that is ours in Him. And we thank You in His name. In Jesus' name, Amen. Mike,